celebrating the life and the work of Dr. King. And as Christians, this should be one of those things that we should all be proud of. As people of faith, when we remember as a country the civil rights movement and in some ways what many believe to be the face of the civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we should be proud because if you watch the movie Selma, which I hope you have, you know that the majority of his speeches took took place inside churches. And this is a man who is a Baptist pastor, just like his father was a pastor, theologically trained at seminary. And all of his work, he saw through the lens of Jesus. And so the things that he did was for the message and the hope of the kingdom of heaven. And if you saw the movie Selma, there's a scene in which the first time they go over the bridge and they begin the march, there is an awful, brutal attack and is broadcast across the news. And the next day, that crowd that started to go the day before had multiplied substantially. And a large percentage of that, 30%, were what the movie called white liberal Christians, many of them clergy that came down to support the cause. And not only was this cause in many ways led by a pastor, the people, the white people who supported it were also of the church. And as we as Americans look back on this, there are many times that we as Christians are embarrassed of what happens by people in the name of Christ. But during the civil rights movement, we have something to be proud of, that this is a movement that in many ways was led and charged by our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That is Hebrews 11 talks about the great cloud of witnesses. We know it's people like Abraham and Peter and Paul, but it's also the men and women who led the civil rights movement who are a part of this great cloud of witnesses that we are fortunate to also be a part of. This is a movement that we should be proud of. But it would be the height of arrogance for us, especially as Southern white Christians, to think we're any different than the people on the other side of the line. I would like to think that for sure I would have been one of the white clergy who was there marching. I would like to think that I would have been one of the white people who said, this is not right, and I'm willing to sacrifice for this. But I know that just as we sang a version of My Hope is Built, there are many Christians who oppose the civil rights movement who also sang that song. And just as we're going to open the Bible up in a minute and read God's word, we know that there are countless other Christians who read that same book and quoted the same verses that we will quote today who oppose the civil rights movement. And it would be very ignorant enough of us to think that what was inside of them, fear, hatred, insecurity, whatever it is, to think that that's not also inside of us. And any time that we want to oppose and oppress people and tell people you can't have certain rights, we need to remember what happened just a few decades ago in our country by people just like you and me who oppose God's work in the civil rights movement. It should cause us to be very quick to pump the brakes on whatever cause we are pushing against because we know there are very many people of the same religious belief as us who are pushing against the civil rights movement. And so we should be very proud of what happened as we remember Dr. King, but we should also remember that we are no different than the people who are opposing him because the same thing inside of them is also in us. And whatever you want to call that, it's there. During this series, we're talking about it as a, as a monster. That's the metaphor we're using. And the idea in this series that we've been talking about is if you don't deal with the monster inside of you, it's going to eventually show up anyway. If you don't transform your pain, transform your anxiety, 
transform your shame and your guilt, it will eventually be transmitted to those around you, especially the ones you love the most. And so the first part of the series was encouraging us to do that. And the second part of the series was identifying some of the monsters that are very prevalent in our time and in our culture. Monsters like the monster of comparison, in which everything we do, we compare ourselves to the people around us to legitimize us. Is he more successful? Does, he have, does she have it more altogether? Do they look better than us? Do they have more money in the bank? We, that's a monster. And as we're talking about in this series, we're talking about befriending the monster. And it would be easy for someone to misconstrue the message and start to think that what we're called to do is make peace with the fact that I'm just a person who always compares myself. Or at night, I can't go to sleep unless I have like five or six old fashions or crown and coats. Well, that's just me. I just need to befriend that. But that's not what we're trying to argue in the series. It's always about the issue behind the issue. The issue with the monster of comparison or alcoholism isn't how you compare yourself or isn't how much alcohol you drink. It's what's behind that. What insecurity inside of you is telling you you are not good enough on your own, so you need to stack yourself up against others. That's what you have to befriend. That pain that you have to mask and self-medicate, that's the monster you need to become friends with so that you don't have to medicate and run from it in destructive ways. And so that's what we're doing in this series. And so this last part of the series, which we'll be going through for the next uh, few weeks leading up until Lent, which starts the middle of February, we're going to be talking about the monster-friendly life. What does it mean to be a person who has made peace with the monsters around them, the monsters inside of them, and can live a wholehearted life. Uh, if you have a Bible, Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn there now, it would be a good time to do this. Paul writes in Romans 8, starting in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. And will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, This is a passage that many scholars point to as the climax of what Paul has been arguing. That we now are waiting for redemption, but it's not just us. All of creation has this longing inside of them. Let's pray. God, give us ears to hear what you have to say. Let us be present. Let us be available to the work of the Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I've got a friend who's in the uh, nutrition world, the, the diet, the get healthy world. And I, I've heard her talk to people about how they need to change their diet and certain things that they need to start eating and things they don't need to eat. And, and she gives into the, like, the, the temptation. I think many people in that business give into. And she says, if you, I know you can't eat all the stuff that you want to eat. You can't eat ice cream every night. You can't eat pizza every day. Things which I think are great ideas. She said, you can't do those things But if you eat these foods, it's okay because you'll be full. Now, if anyone has ever given up eating a pizza for lunch and instead decided to have a kale salad, they know you're not full afterwards. If anyone who's decided at night, I'm not going to eat a batch of cookies, 
but instead I'm just going to drink water, you know that no matter if you're going to waterboard your hunger, you will still be hungry afterwards. But no one ever says the one thing that anyone knows who has really gone through a serious lifestyle change is they know if you want to get healthy, you have to be okay with being hungry. But no one wants to say that. No, you know, if you want to get healthy, just become okay with being hungry. That doesn't sell well. No one likes that. But that inability to be comfortable with being hungry in a metaphorical sense seems to be behind a lot of the ways that things are packaged and sold in our country. Think about a car commercial. You can pick anyone you want. What is the car commercial really selling you? Is it selling you a vehicle or is it selling you an experience, a way to meet some need? A longing for adventure, a longing for excitement, a longing to have prestige? No car commercial says this is an economical way to get from point A to point B in a reliable and cost-effective manner. That's a terrible commercial. And that's why they don't have them like that. Instead, they're trying to say, this is something that will meet your need, some need, whatever it is. You can listen just a tiny bit of pop music or watch just a few snippets of a romantic comedy to realize the way we talk about love is the same way. That if you want to have something that's going to keep you happy and make you feel full on the inside and make you feel like you're living in a fairy tale, you need to just find the right person. It never says marriage is a choice in which you choose to partner with a fellow broken person and deal with the joys and the struggles of life with one another and the highs and the lows. That's not it. It's, oh, if you have the right person, everything will be perfect. Because what's being sold is an ability to get rid of a hunger. If you have whatever commodity is I'm giving you, it will fix this need and you'll never be hungry again. Even though that's not part of the human experience. That's not how we are wired. There was a study in, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple years ago that references a study done that was uh, communicated in 2011. It was an institute in Sweden, and the study was on 324 people who went through a gender reassignment surgery. And so the study that the Wall Street Journal discusses was a study that studied 324 people that went through a gender reassignment surgery. And it was a study done over a long period of time. Some people were in the study for up to 30 years. And one of the things that this study concluded is that around the 10-year mark, people who undergo a gender reassignment surgery start to in experience increasing mental difficulties. And at the 10-year mark, the suicide rate of someone who has undergone a gender reassignment surgery compared to someone in the non-transgender community is 20 times higher. 20 times higher. Which, if you hear anything as a Christian, your first thought needs to be, what can we do as the Christian community to support these people who are a part of a community that has such an astronomically high suicide rate? We need to be doing something about that. But the Wall Street Journal as they, they comment on this study, they said they don't really know exactly what to say about it and, and what's the ultimate result. They, they might point to some isolation as being part of it. Uh, I heard another therapist talk about uh, research like that, and his conclusion is that people who undergo this very drastic procedure 
have I've thought about for a long period of time. They have had this feeling like they are the wrong gender, which I can't imagine the kind of turmoil they go through when, when that's your thought process and that's how you feel. But all along they've thought, once I have this procedure done, then everything will be right. If I get this, this is going to be like that carrot that's dangling in front of me. Once I get there, then these problems will go away. And part of the human experience is it doesn't matter what you reach for, whether it's success or the car or some quality of life or style of life which you think will make the hunger go away, and it just doesn't happen. That's not part of the kit that we were given when we were born. It's not part of being human. Someone gave me uh, this pen a while ago, and it's a... uh, Pretty neat pen. You might uh, not be able to see it from the back, but uh, as my friend Terry can, you can be my Vanna White for this. Would you mind? Okay, so what we have here is the skin of an animal. Can you tell me what that is, Terry? Okay. <laughs> okay. My bad, Terry. I love you. I'm sorry I threw you under the bus like that. Okay, this is rattlesnake. Okay, if you look right here, rattlesnake. And this right here, can you tell me what that looks like? One of you carchers, come on now. You've shot a gun before. A bullet, exactly. And so this is a pen which has rattlesnake right here, and then you have the shell casing of a bullet which shot the rattlesnake. Right? Pretty neat, isn't it? It's a great story. It's not true at all. Uh, But still, it's a great story. You have this thing that you have a bullet that killed the rattlesnake, and now you have a pen from it. It's a great story. It's not a true story either. Let me tell you another story. 1764, there was an outbreak of attacks by a beast. There were some 200 attacks in this small town in France in which numbers estimate between 100 and 120 people were killed by this beast, the beast of Govindon. That's a picture of it right there. Okay, and if you notice the date, 1765 is when that uh, thing was done. That's the year that Louis XV called two professional hunters and employed them to go hunt down this beast. In 1765, a year later, they don't get it done. These two professional hunters can't kill the beast. And so another guy comes along. He's now in charge of it. He kills the beast. He thinks it's it. But the attacks still continue. And so another two years go by. It's 1767. And someone who was uh, commended by a nobleman to, to hunt this beast finally attacks and kills this 130-pound wolf that over those years had killed over 100 people. Now, the legend has it that this 130-pound wolf, which had killed hundreds of people, 100 100 people, was killed by a silver bullet. At least that's what legend says. Now, the legend was added to that story later as people began the myth of the silver bullet. Now, we hear people talk about silver bullets And stories from the Brothers Grimm, to the Lone Ranger, to every vampire story. Because they're told if you have a silver bullet, that can kill the monster. That was the myth created with the monster of Gavendon. The problem is it's just not true. They added that years after the story was actually took place. It's a good story, it's just not a true story. But that myth that if you have the right bullet you can take down any monster, continues to be perpetuated. Because ultimately, that's under the myth that if you have the right thing that you can acquire, that hunger inside of you will go away. 
The problem is Christians have bought into this myth that we know we all have a hunger and a longing. But unlike people outside of the church, we know the right thing to do is if you have Jesus in your life, that's the answer. And so we don't think that our spouse is supposed to Jerry Maguire, you complete me. We don't expect that of our spouse, but we expect God to do that. And we don't think if we get a good enough promotion at work that all of our problems will go away. But we believe if you're connected to God, then you don't have any more pain in your life. The problem is that's just not part of Christianity. That's buying into the myth of the silver bullet. Uh, There's an author named Pete Rollins who talks about how the church does this and the result of it. And this is what Pete says. What we see taking place in the church today is the reduction of God to an idol. That is, to a thing that will satisfy us and fill the gap we feel in our hearts. And thinking of God in this way, the church ends up mimicking every other industry by claiming that they can take away the sense of loss that marks our life. By claiming that God is the way to fill this gap, they reduce the divine to the level of a product. When you start to think that God is ultimately the solution to every problem in life, you turn God into another commodity that can be acquired. But that's not part of the Christian story. If we can go back to Romans chapter 8. Go to the second slide, please. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit groaning inwardly. But we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, Like I said earlier, there are many people who believe that this passage in Romans is a lot of ways the climax of Paul's theology all coming together. Because the two themes that seem to run through Scripture are the idea of creation and covenant. God created a world that was good, but it fell apart. There was sin, sin entered the world, and now this creation is in need of redemption. And that redemption starts with the covenant with the Jewish people, and it is fulfilled in Jesus. That is the way that God has been faithful to his creation to redeem it. And at the resurrection, that is the first fruit of this new creation coming into existence. And we've seen that, but we wait for the ultimate resurrection of all creation, including ourselves. And so we're in this weird in-between time that the kingdom of heaven announces, that Jesus inaugurates. So he's won the battle, but we're still waiting. So if you remember history, Julius Caesar was assassinated by a man named Brutus and his posse. They killed him. They killed Julius Caesar. And so Julius Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, along with Julius Caesar's good buddy, Mark Anthony, decide that they're going to uh, exact revenge upon the people who killed Julius Caesar. And so they team up, they kill this guy and the people who, who were part of the plan. But then they realize that Julius Caesar's throne is now open. And so you have Octavian and Mark Anthony, who were teammates in a sense of getting revenge, now turn on each other because they both want the throne. The rightful heir in Octavian and Julius Caesar's right-hand man, Mark Anthony. And so they have this civil war that breaks out and people pick sides. I'm with Mark Anthony. I'm with Octavian. Who is it going to be? And eventually... Julius Caesar's rightful heir, Octavian, wins the battle. And it was announced that the good news that Mark Anthony has lost, that Octavian has won, was spread throughout the kingdom. 
The problem is it took another couple years, two years exactly, for that victory, for that good news to be really embodied. And so people heard that Mark Anthony had lost, and the gospel, the good news, that's the word that was used, that Octavian had won, even though it took years for that to go into place. That same word, gospel, is the word that Christians have used to describe what Jesus has done. When Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, he's announcing this victory, even though there are years before that victory is seen on earth, in the same way that you would see a military victory enacted. And so what we are in right now is this weird time of the in-between where the new creation has started to be put into place. But it's not there fully. And so we wait for redemption, but until then we have this longing, this groaning, as Paul would say. And it doesn't matter what you look to, it doesn't ever get fixed. And as long as you're looking for a silver bullet, you will continue to reach and grasp for things that can never do what they promise. And so really the function of good religion is not to offer you a solution that will never actually work, but to tell you one simple thing. That that hunger, that longing, that itch, it will never be filled, it will never be taken away, and no scratch can make it feel better. It's always going to be there. And the job of good religion is to make peace with that. That's why the series is not called Getting Rid of Your Monsters. It's not called shooting your monsters or eradicating the monsters. It's making peace with those because they're not going away. There's a famous passage from Philippians 4 that many of us know the, the conclusion of this, but we don't really know the, what precedes it. In, in Romans, or Philippians 4, Paul has this line. He says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. But now that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned, to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In, all circum- in any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What Paul is saying is that I don't have some secret to get rid of the hunger, but I've learned to be content even when the hunger is there. When I was... Younger, I used to always be fascinated with people who always seem to get what they want, like really talented, successful people. And I'd be lying to say that that still doesn't have a fascination in my life to some degree. But the respect that I have grown to have for a different group of people now outweighs that. And it's not for the people who always get what they want, but the people who never get what they want and still are content. Because there is a type of depth that comes when you learn that that hunger, it's always going to be there. And that longing will always be there and nothing can get rid of that. But you learn to be at peace with that. Because that's ultimately the journey we're called to go down. Because the hunger just doesn't go away. And like Casey said earlier, we do believe in the message of Jesus, that Jesus is better. But it's not like you don't sign it for Jesus for no reason. We believe the message of Jesus is good news still. Even if it's not exactly what we want it to be. But part of this good news is what we celebrate each week around these tables. When someone hands you a little tray and a little cup, and they remind you that the body of Christ is broken for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. And we are reminded as we receive communion that this meal might not fill you up. You're still going to want to go to lunch afterwards. It's not going to keep you full for the next week, but it'll be enough to keep you going. And you might not get 
a week's bread or a month's bread or a year's bread. But God continues to be the God who provides our daily bread. Just enough to keep you going. And that's the good news we have. In a second, after I pray, I'm going to invite you to make your way to these tables if you're new here. What will happen is someone will administer communion to you and we can receive communion around these tables. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news we have of Jesus. And as we live in this in-between time that Jesus has won the victory, that new creation is bursting forth, but we wait for the ultimate redemption when heaven and earth are brought together. And there will be no more need for the sun because you will be our light. And there will be no more reason to have a temple because you will dwell with us. And in this land where there is no more tears, there's no more chaos, but we are actually dwelling in the presence of God and this world has been redeemed. We will be full then. We will be redeemed. We will be made right. But until then, let us learn to wait patiently and to be content with hunger. Praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.